0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM, Channel 132. Welcome behind the markets here on business radio powered by the warren school i'm your host jeremy schwartz global cio wisdom tree my co-host is warren finance professor jeremy siegel author of Stocks for the Long Run. We'll also be joined by Christopher Gennady, who's global head of research at WisdomTree. Chris and I are both registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale so of any investment products. The views are, yes, are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. We have a really interesting show. We have an author of a very interesting book, Power in Progress, uh, Simon Johnson from MIT, uh, to get his take on, his, on what's going on in technology and how to today's AI technologies compared to some of the past technologies. But, Professor, to kick us off, we're going to have your review of – we got the the jobs report, we had the ADP report, uh, we've got markets on the move. Uh, tell us what your reaction is to all the data this week.
2: Yeah, that ADP scared everyone uh, yesterday, did it? And everyone was really positioned very, uh, you know, oh, my God, what what will we see in payrolls? And the payrolls okay, – We're uh, on on the weakish side, Um, uh, clearly uh, coming in a bit below expectation with a minus 110,000 revision of the previous month. Um, But, you know, there's something here for the hawks. There's something here for the doves. I mean, yeah, weak payroll, but uh, hourly earnings tipped one-tenth over expectation and uh, with revisions year over year. Um were two tenths above expectations, 4.4. Um, the unemployment rate, the basic U2 unemployment rate, did uh, actually uh, dip down um by one tenth of one percent. Uh yet uh I mean from 3736 as expected. But what was a little unexpected is the uh U6 broad unemployment rate uh was up to six point nine, which um um and, and uh uh that's uh, that that uh, the li- a little bit worrisome but depends on you know how, how you want to look at it i mean the hawks can say earnings are hot and payrolls are still strong although you know certainly not what we saw earlier um i should mention in fairness we did get a a very slight bounce back in that work week which fell precipitously in the last month um so you know th- there's enough for those who want to gain. And there's on the other side, there's enough for the doves to say, hey, you know what, we're, we are in the deceleration, uh, let's wait. I mean, clearly um, there are more hawks than doves. Uh, we're, we still have a number of weeks. We have a CPI next week, that's gonna be important. We have two or three more initial jobless claims, which have stabilized at a higher level, but not shot up. So we don't see any, you know, dramatic weakening Uh, that comes. Um, I disagree with some FOMC participants who have suggested that uh, legs are not that long, they're not afraid of long variable legs, um, and they're going to wait to really see the job market turn down before they're going to start thinking about stopping and easing. I think that is a mistake. Um, uh, First of all, they should just look back at their own experience by waiting too long on inflation um, until they recognize that they let it go out of control. This is not something that uh, you can you can turn on a, a dime. Nonetheless, you know the economy is chugging along. Whether this is the you know the last uh, hurrah, shall we say, before uh, you know when summer ends, everyone gets their credit bills and goes back to school. And uh, you know, time is October and September have often been uh, troublesome. There, we we'll, we will uh, have to, uh, have to wait and see. Um, so the market really, um, uh, the bond market has been pretty volatile. Stocks have sort of been holding in. Now, as far as sensitive commodities that we look at, um, stabilized, but not really rising. Oil is in the low 70s, not going down anymore. Uh, the commodity indexes have sort of stabilized at a very low level, but not going down anymore. We talked about Case Shiller also, it stabilized inching up a little bit. Uh, the hawks are using the stabilization and upward movement of Kay Schiller and others to say we you know there's more work uh, to be done on the part of the Fed. We did get an upward tick in the money supply in the last month. Um, uh, part of it was a reflow of deposits back into the banking system after the SVB uh, deb- debacle that we had earlier. Um, so we'll see how that stabilizes. We see, some, in other words, we see a lot of these things like sensitive comies stabilizing at these current levels. And again, my advice would be stop and wait, um, and be very sensitive to deterioration in 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 the real variable because clearly we do have a slowing economy. Uh, no matter how much you 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 look at it in terms of Of the payroll gains um and one should be reminded you know gains can turn into losses very quickly um, uh, in the market once they do and if the fed acknowledges it you have the fear of the recession but lower rates the two will battle their way out um that is why i don't see a great market for the second half but i don't see uh, a market that's falling apart uh, at all either
1: are there things, Professor, that that has made this economy more resilient on the interest rate sensitivity? What's your sense of these jobs programs? You know, everything's been so resilient to these higher rate rate hikes. Is yeah. there?
2: Yeah, I mean, spending, consumer spending has been most of it. Um, has been uh, is has been really quite resilient. Um, ah, uh, some people say it's the YOLO philosophy. You only live once. People are. Our awakening I, I am surprised I will admit I didn't expect uh, there to be such resilience I thought we would see the downturn for now however again long and variable legs um, It can be it can be longer before we see it and I, I you know my my warning is still there um, unless you act like oh I see it and I'm going to move um, uh, you risk making a downturn uh, worse than it is. My feeling is, is that why risk a downturn when you've stabilized basic inflation? Uh, again, wages need to catch up. They are slowly catching up to inflation. As inflation stabilizes, wages are slowly creeping to gain their lost one. To over panic about wages is a is an absolutely wrong uh, uh, policy, in my opinion pursued by the Fed, Um, um, but yeah, I'm going to to admit it. I did not expect the job market and the real economy to be as strong as it was, given how strong liquidity had gone down and how high the real rate has been. However, I do think that, you know, the, the, the inflation rate has come down, as we know, using those um, timely measures and uh, that further tightening at this particular point. We've all heard the expression, the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, Everyone says, if they tighten again, everyone say, you know what? I'm taking my money out of my bank account. This is the last straw. I'm not going to get my 1% anymore. And everyone's going to start moving away uh, when you can get such unbelievably great yields on these very short-term treasuries. Um uh, you know, given the the relative value uh of inflation. We don't know when that point will come. My feeling is as long as inflationary expectations and as long as sensitive commodities are stabilized, there's no reason to risk the the so-called straw that breaks the camel's back.
1: In the four and the tenure over four percent. We not just the five yeah, percent no. at the short end, you got the the tenure four. Is it getting to the peak in the 10 year, or, or do you think we got a little bit more? Yeah,
2: I mean, I guess, uh, you know, it, it, it peaked earlier with that aggressive uh, tightening down. I do know that this means that mortgage rates are probably, again, you know, we like said ticking up seven and a quarter, maybe even higher. The Fed does go higher. Um, uh, you know, again, uh, we, we've talked about this how much home ownership has been expensive and how much the basic consumer can keep up his. Or her juggernaut spending with such a um, uh, with with some of the basic costs so high. Some people who've done the calculations say there's another six months, five months of excess stimulus to burn off. Um, but my feeling is you want a glide path there. You want to say, okay, in that point, uh, if it burns off, will there be a much sharper slowdown in spending? Um, um, rather than, at this point, my feeling is keep the rates where they are. Banking system is stable. We still have more to play out. Um, It seems like, though, the hawks are in control. um, And unless we get some very soft data uh, in the next three weeks, we'll have to say that 25 basis points at the end of this month. Although, again, I wouldn't be surprised if we had one or two voting members on the FOMC that might dissent uh, on that side. But we will talk about that in future uh, weeks. Well, Professor, thanks for kicking us off on this holiday
1: week. Uh, Have a great, uh, great weekend.
2: Thank you very much, Jeremy. I'm
1: going to turn our conversation to uh, uh, Simon Johnson, a professor at MIT and author of this very interesting book, Power and Progress, uh, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. I got through the book, Simon, in just a f- few short days. Uh, I had a nice plane ride um, from from the holidays to to do it. But uh, we also have Chris Gennady, who focuses on a lot of technology trends with me at, at Wisdom Tree. Welcome to Behind the Market, Simon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, you know, there's a lot of places in the book I, I want to go through. There's a lot of great history lessons, and I think some parallels that we can draw from past episodes that you go through. But you know, just one of the opening lines I, I think caught my uh, caught my eyes when you talk about Google's Sundar Pichai talks about AI is perhaps, or he says AI is probably the most important thing humanity has ever worked on. I think of it as something more profound than electricity or fire. Do you believe in that kind of? Big uh, hyperbole on how important AI is, and then we can talk through
3: all the implications. I think AI is important, Jeremy, honestly, and I think it's one of these technologies that will look back in five years and say, wow, that actually had more impact than, than many of us thought. Uh, whether it's bigger than fire, I would hesitate on that. Electricity, of course, was was extremely profound in how it affected both how we live and how we work it did take longer uh, The rollout of electricity uh, in retrospect was a thirty to forty year process because you had to build the infrastructure and people had to remake their factories basically so in terms of concentrated impact, AI is going to be one of one, one of the, the the most important technologies uh, ever
1: now what are you know you have a, a big thesis on i mean the book is a lot about who benefits from these technologies and the choices we make in society and and how it goes. Maybe give your, your major thesis of some of these past technologies and we can go through some examples. Um, but ha- how you think AI shapes up versus some of these past technologies?
3: Yeah, and I think with the, the story with with all technologies, pretty much without exception, is there are choices that are that are made. Sometimes you'll read the history book and it says, Oh, look, it was all predestined, you've entered the steam engine, you're gonna have the factory, you're gonna have a working class, and so on. But I think within that, there's there's all a lot of choices that are made of, particularly by the people who, who both do the invention and they do the initial deployment, the proof of concept and, and the scaling. And I think with AI, just like with the steam engine or with electricity um, or um, other, other key things we, 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 we could point to, um, it's not clear to us which way this is going to go. So AI could be um, really liberating human improvement technology. So it could help a lot of people have better lives, or it could be something that that, destroys a lot of jobs and and pushes us towards a more unequal distribution of income. And and I think the productivity implications are similar on both sides of that. So it's not like one is good, one is less efficient, but who makes those choices uh, matters a lot it, it, and, and I think nothing is more consequential right now in terms of current policy debates so, so I guess talk through some technologies
1: that were where the gains did not really go to the average person, and then and maybe then we'll talk about some that did but 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 start with th- things that went badly, you think, for the average person, things that well, huge increases in productivity, but the
3: average worker may not have been better off. Well, there's a lot of examples in, in history. I mean, the, the most uh, dramatic and, and and rather horrible one from American history is, of course, the invention of the cotton gin that allowed a lot of the Deep South to become suitable for cotton cultivation. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, that meant slavery and slaves moved from the East Coast, where the uh, cotton business was relatively small, across the, all, all of the South. And, you know, at the time of independence, the U.S. was not a major cotton producer. obviously already had slavery but the scale of slavery and the intensity and the awfulness of slavery increased from that time until the civil war to about cotton plantations Um, and so at the same time of course in america um people in the north were inventing a a a system of manufacturing that rather favored unskilled labor because that's what they had to work with and and the productivity of those free labor Um, That free labor in the North went up a lot, and wages consequently went up a lot. So we had this sort of bifurcation in in American history. The more common experience, historically speaking, is the bad one. But America led the way in the 19th century in terms of demonstrating that new technology could be transformational in a positive sense, in a very inclusive sense, and that's what propelled the US to to the world leadership position in terms of manufacturing and and industrial power and then broader power. So we're recommending more of that um, approach now that one of the lines i wrote down is the the arrival of
1: ai our future begins to look discouragingly like our agricultural past uh that was one of the the quotes I, I i wrote down from from the book so what what do you think makes ai and tech similar to that exact example that you just went through
3: well it, it's certainly the case that you know a few people control this technology and how it's being developed I and mean, they're the people who got in early they're people who made the bets um, so you know, kudos to them in, in in that sense. But it's it's a very um, particular set of people. They're you know West Coast tech technology um, executives, of course, and we're not convinced, including from talking to them, by the way, um, that um, th- this is they're going to be pushing the technology in a way that really augments human capabilities and creates the kinds of new tasks that you need. To support the demand for labor and to push up wages, alongside pushing up productivity, it seems to us that they're very focused on replacing people uh, with the sort of the, the mentality that we sum up as self-checkout kiosks in in grocery stores, which reduce jobs. You don't need as many workers, but they shift the tasks onto the consumers mostly. They don't increase productivity, um, but they do. Management does like it because of what it does to, uh, with regard to power inside the grocery store. So. And your wages, the wages of grocery store workers, of course, don't, don't go up in that context. So what kind of automation, what kind of AI-powered automation are we going to get? Is it the kind that drives out the demand for labor, consistent with high productivity gains? That's a win-win for everyone. Or is it the kind that just replaces labor and, and basically redistributes income?
0: And, in, in, in Simon, ult- ultimately, what struck out to me was the idea of automation that creates these new tasks that, then allow sort of people to be augmented and ultimately do more versus a type of automation, a theme that was coming up again and again was all you're using it for is surveillance. All you're using it for is to serve up advertisements or content recommendations. So obviously in those cases, those few firms make a lot of money, but broader society, not, not the most beneficial. Whereas you look back at history and there are, things like electricity, it created all these new tasks. And that's what, or one of the things that seemed to get that total factor of productivity higher and higher over uh, a period of time anyway.
3: Yeah, absolutely, Chris. So, so we're not at all against automation. We want automation to go in this direction of boosting productivity, creating new tasks is the key there. Uh, look, um, advising you on what to watch on Netflix, I'm not very worked up about that, but surveillance, uh, using AI for surveillance uh, is, I think, a very big deal, but that could potentially go badly. A friend of mine was just in China, um, and said that um, what we had in our book about surveillance in China is exactly what he saw in terms of not just uh, how technology is being used, but also the attitudes of the people in charge. You know, it's like we can use this technology to control people and to make sure they do what we, the elite, want them to do. And, you know, I, I think that's very dangerous uh, for any society. I don't think we're going to do that in the United States, because I think we feel very strongly that we have individual freedoms that we want to maintain, Um, but we have to watch out for this, uh, absolutely, including in the corporate workplace. It
0: it was fascinating when you went into the sort of comparison uh, where you were saying there's, there's the concept of being worried about banning the books, and then there's the concept of people are so ingrained that they don't even want to read anything. And the experiment that was sort of detailed where various people in China, using that as probably as a quintessential example, I know every headline these days is U.S. versus China, new restriction here, new restriction there. So it's a, it's an easy thing that people connect to. But this this idea of basically they're doing certain things, progressing along a certain path that's very different than democracy. And AI is absolutely this. I mean, we're seeing it in. Some of the funds that we look at globally that have an ESG screen, it's it's so bad that the surveillance tripwire in platforms like Sustainalytics is being triggered for certain very, very large Chinese companies. So to, to get to that point where even a broad platform of ESG is, you know, flagging that surveillance is that bad, it's uh it's a pretty remarkable statement.
3: Yeah, I think that I think the reality, Chris, is the world is going to split into a Uh, A part of the world, which is led by China, which doesn't put safeguards around surveillance, so it's used by the people in charge to do whatever they want. And China is, of course, already uh, exporting or attempting to export that technology. The other part of the world will accept some surveillance, but with safeguards, right? Um, We we already have a lot more surveillance, for example, at U.S. airports than than we've had before. We have facial recognition to board planes and so on. But there's going to be safeguards on that, and I think those safeguards will be backed up by law, (laughs) and and they will be respected uh, by, by and large. And a very good question, should we be buying goods and services from countries that use surveillance technologies that we regard as anathema, unacceptable, but they use those surveillance technologies to keep the wages of their workers down so they can sell cheaper products? Should we in the U.S. be... Uh, implicitly condoning those oppressive practices by buying goods from places that are using that Chinese-type, Chinese-led surveillance technology? It's an open question. I, I I think it's a bad idea, personally, but it's certainly a debate we need to have.
2: It, it is going part of that to...
0: debate you, you, you mentioned in the book, the the Amazon story, where it's basically, you know, you start the book with the panopticon and then at various points allude to the fact that, you know, the general worker in the warehouse at Amazon during the holidays there is an awful lot of surveillance. It's it's certainly not China, let's say, but on the other hand, it's maybe not as far away as we might like um, from from China. So it's it is an, a very interesting uh, debate and discussion that you that you allude
3: to there. Yeah, look, I think if if surveillance in the warehouse or or for delivery uh, trucks, if that is consistent with high levels of safety, in fact, maybe it may could make people more safe then I think we that we will come around to that. But if that surveillance is used to drive people harder than otherwise, to the extent that there are more workplace accidents, injuries in the in the um, warehouse or, or accidents on the road from delivery trucks, then I think we're going to have, I mean, not just Daron <laughs> and I, but I think society is going to have some real reservations about that. So I think, you know, the way America ro- works, we're pretty empirical. We want to see the data. We want to understand the consequences. And there's no way we'll accept social surveillance like China has accepted it. And 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 the extent to which workplace ex- surveillance is seen as um reasonable and, and and something that you know fits within OSHA regulation, for example, that remains to be seen.
1: You know, it's interesting. It's it's a it's a Tommy discussion this this week as as we're doing this interview, uh Janet Yellen's over in China, and there's you know this talks about you know are we is, where is the path of conversation? You also in in the headlines today is also Alibaba being regulated by by China. China took some of their own tech companies to the woodshed with some regulations, and and actually today there's like a relief rally happening in Alibaba. Maybe China's crackdown on their own tech companies are coming to an end, but the in in this China versus U.S. and the the actions the U.S. is taking to. You could say crimp China's own benefits in, in AI and semiconductors and all sorts of things. I expect that, that tension to stay with us for, for years. I don't see this going backwards. I think we're going to take more actions. I'm, I'm more increasingly worried about the tensions between China and the U.S. Um, but you, you, you talk about how some of this technology goes anti-democracies. I mean, you talk about the benefits of democracies in, the battle of ideas and where technology is not helping democracies fight in in many ways.
3: Yeah, that, that's that's a, that's a very important topic, Jeremy. But first, on the on the U.S. China, I would say there is some scope for cooperation, and I think part, one thing, one reason Ye- Secretary Yellen is there is to is to push on points where the Chinese want to cooperate, including on climate change. So the air quality in Beijing has improved a great deal in recent years. Partly that was COVID experience, but partly is cleaning up coal powered. Um, Electricity generation, um, and and I so I think there are some topics on which we could cooperate, but surveillance is not one of them. Uh, and and I, I think more broadly, the technology of is is your, are you deploying uh, communication technology that is pro democracy, anti democracy, or kind of neutral? Uh, look, we can already see from the experience of Facebook uh, around the world that, uh, and and I don't say, and 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 the book doesn't say that this was deliberate by Facebook, but it, there were people who found ways to use Facebook. Um, to foment uh, ethnic hatred and violence, for example, in Myanmar. This has been very well documented. And Facebook, I think, has questions to answer in terms of why it didn't respond sooner. Maybe maybe it still hasn't responded um, fully to the potential for that kind of abuse. I mean, given that the U.S. the bastion of freedom produces the technology and dominates, right, dominates in terms of social media technology, with a couple of exceptions, like TikTok, um, It is remarkable that this technology and and also remember at the time of the Arab Spring, many of us, including me, were convinced that this kind of social media could have a very pro-democracy impact. I don't think that's generally the experience around the world right now. I think it's been um, co-opted by authoritarian authoritarian governments. and, of course, they can cut themselves off from, from the Internet. They can cut themselves off from Western social media platforms. I think Russia has done more of that. China obviously has the great firewall. Um, but I think even with the, within the set of countries that are using um, U.S. origin technology, um, there's a lot of anti-democratic use of social media.
1: I mean, I mean this week we have, uh, we've we got Zuck, Zuck and Elon going at it. You've got... Uh... Threads coming out as a competitor to, to Twitter, and you have Elon's, uh, you know, Twitter files when they did all the release of all the interactions of the government trying to get them to, to edit and censor tweets uh, back uh, back in the day, and and now you've got conversations with they're trying to talk to the government and say you shouldn't be contacting these social media companies as much. What what's your take on the current state of the social media censorship in the U.S. for these types of discussions?
3: Well, I I wish we had more competition, Jeremy. That's the big thing. Right. So if you had competition, if you had alternative business models, let's say we had five of them or 10, then you'd be able to say, well, look, these people do it this way. These people do it this way. These people have that slant. The problem is when you just have one dominant player in a particular space like Twitter and there's, there's nothing else close to it, then you get all this political pressure and you have, you know, lots, lots of legitimate scope for disagreement there. I mean, I like the fact that Facebook is challenging them. I I wish it wasn't Facebook. (laughs) I understand that they have Instagram, so that's a ready platform. Um, I I think competition between business models, competition between ideas, ideas about how the technology should be used, that's really healthy. And then let the market decide, uh, market as in the consumers. Um, I think governments are gonna get involved. Whenever you have something that has a public utility or monopoly feature, governments are gonna be drawn to that. Governments of left and right will be drawn to that, and I think that can become problematic
1: it, when, when you think through the you know the, the one of the points on it, it comes to the tech elite in in thinking about where their role is and 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 the choices you talk a lot about the choices we make and and where the tech's view on people in terms of the control of their platforms i mean you sort of talk about automation. Is is one of the key issues, and and sort of the tech's view of people's role in making the decisions on on their platform. Talk a little bit about automation and tech's view of people's decision making uh, capabilities.
3: Right. So I think, and, and this is this is not just about current tech executives, I think it's a, there's a long tradition in computer science, it goes back at least to Alan Turing and the Turing test and the way the Turing test has been interpreted, that computer science has been fascinated by replacing people, right? And, and there's plenty of science fiction stories, many of them dystopian about that. Um, and that is certainly something you can do. That's the self-checkout kiosk story, um, but it's also much broader automation and a lot of what we got with the information technology revolution, actually. The other form of, of innovation and, and automation and consequence of automation that we emphasize, and we see this in U.S. history, for example, when the auto industry was transformed by Henry Ford and by others, is that, you know, so Ford starts out uh, early 1900s. There's a couple of thousand people working in in U.S. auto industry. They make not very many cars. By the time uh, he's reached his heyday in the late 1920s, there's 400,000 people working in the auto industry. They're making between two and three million cars a year, the big the big companies, well, Ford and GM to combined. And, and most of what those four hundred thousand people are doing in the 1920s is not something that humans ever did before. So the auto transformation of the auto industry involved creating a lot of new tasks. Now, at the core of it, of course, Henry Ford really invents or, or, or perfects the 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 moving assembly line, and he brings electricity to the assembly line. So two very big complementary innovations from Henry Ford. Um, so automation. Henry Ford was all about automation, but his form of automation and its consequences involved creating a lot of new things for people to do and things that people were good at doing that you know you, you didn't just replace it with an electric, electric machine couldn't do those tasks. Um, so that's the, that's the key and, and that's the conversation that we're trying to have with the tech industry and with our computer science colleagues because we feel that is totally available in terms of a technology choice, but it's not there. It's not, and, and it is there in computer science and it has lasted um, it, it has. It, we can we can point to particularly historical figures that represented that view, but it's not the predominant view. The predominant view is, hey, let's replace some people, let's sell it to companies as automation that replaces people. Creating new tasks is not our job. Uh, and then you know you have things like um, you know um, Sam Altman going to Congress saying, well, look, it's the government's job to create new jobs. Okay, fine. Uh, you know if the government can do that, but we know the private sector is actually much better at creating new jobs than the government is. So where is the private sector impetus and force to create those new tasks? That's what we're asking for. Are
1: are there some places where you think that's most likely some of the technologies that are coming today? I mean, you're using the car example. I I wonder if you have self-driving cars that sort of removes taxi drivers and trucking drivers and all sorts of things. But you could put your cars to work for people, and they could, you know, use their cars in different ways. What, what are the? Are, is that a technology that you think will end up creating more tasks, or is that also just going to put people out of work?
3: Well, look, I think self-driving cars is largely a red herring, to be honest, because we already know that if you put self-driving in an environment where all the vehicles are self-driving, then you can have it works, right? But if you want to mix self-driving cars with humans-driving cars, that's extremely complicated. If you want to add rain wind and snow (laughs) it's very difficult as a computational problem so yeah look i think the rhetoric there funnily enough is what people get people excited is hey we'll replace all these workers luckily i think that one's much less likely to to happen but you know with generative ai what we're seeing is obviously a a, a tremendous already i mean this was already happening you know two days after chat gpt came out we've seen the replacement of a lot of people uh, who were previously doing uh, rough first drafts writing english but not particularly well um they're already replaced by the algorithm or the algorithms competing algorithms now and i think generative ai has a huge amount of potential for um enhancing human capabilities with new tasks in healthcare in education in other areas that is not currently the priority of the the companies driving that tech as far as we can see Somebody with with uh, two
1: young daughters in in uh, middle and elementary school, the education one speak, spoke to me, and I, I want to come back to that. I want to get into some of the recommendations and policy prescriptions, because you talk so much about how the choices we make in society impacts who gains from these technologies. Uh, and one of the questions is taxes. Uh, you talk a little bit about taxes as one of the things that we should think about. And perhaps we might need automation taxes in some cases. What, what's the case? Do we need to tax robots? Or do you think we're going to have to tax
3: automation? Yeah, we're not in favor of taxing robots right now. I mean, it's actually pretty hard to figure out how that taxation would work. We do have a point out the obvious fact that we tax labor kind of highly right now uh, through payroll taxes. And there's, a, there's an interesting backstory about why we do that. But if you just think about, do we do we treat... Uh, machines and, and people on an equal basis from a tax uh, regime point of view? The answer is no. Right now, uh, we, we tax uh, employment of people a lot more heavily than we tax the um, building or, or, or purchase of machines to replace those people. So that imbalance seems to us to be pretty inappropriate for this moment. So, you know, the examples that you gave and the numbers are
1: pretty stark, where the taxes, if you have a hundred thousand dollar employee, the taxes are you know, you say 25%, and then on capital investments, much lower, like 5%. You want to walk through some of the math on on how that works?
3: Yeah, well, obviously, it depends on the precise um, nature of the business and the various tax credits available and so on. So we were taking average rates there. And the payroll tax is, of course, people's contribution to Social Security and Medicare. And that's the reason why uh, those rates are, are pretty high, because we feel that those are social insurance programs i mean when i say we i mean the american political body has over nearly 100 years said okay it's an insurance program you should pay in like an insurance premium and then you get the money out when you when you uh, reach a certain age um so that that though is uh partly paid by the employer obviously uh and so that is a tax on uh your employment of, the, of those workers and that's one reason why people feel encouraged to find um ways to replace those workers um you know that's an unbalanced tax system and that's given that we're expecting pressure on workers through the forms of automation that are coming to fast food and and everything else um that that seems inadvisable right now
1: now
0: i was thinking about uh along that line in the book we talk about Sweden. We talk about Germany. They obviously do certain things differently than, say, a UK or a US. Um, some of it is tax-related. Some of it is social policy. What What are some of the key things that we, you know, assuming most of our listeners might be based in the US, could maybe learn from a Germany or a Sweden?
3: Well, I think Germany is is the most interesting reference point. And that's the one where we can actually learn some useful things. And that's particularly about the way in which workers are involved in and and um, you know uh, support the adoption of new technology, in part because they feel like they're going to be trained to use that technology and become more productive, and they're likely to get higher wages. So we've done this in some at some points in the U.S. We did it in the more in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's not a standard U.S. labor practice now. Um, we tend to be, you know workers push for higher wages and employers set um, determine the deployment of technology. But linking those two issues together we think is a good idea and something that we advise companies and, and unions to to take on more directly. So in other words, you get the productivity gain, but you also get higher wages and workers can see that coming and they're more likely to want the technology because they, they feel it's going to help them um, in, in, in various small ways, but also in, in, in big ways.
0: Germany was interesting as well because the way you described it it's almost like when a company is going to sort of introduce something new or an industry is going to introduce something new you, you talk about like the idea of seats at the table and maybe the table in the US you alluded to it there's only a small number of people there they might have very similar views come from very similar backgrounds think that they know best etc whereas in Germany you've got representatives from capital from labor they all kind of have to agree, sort of take a stake in it. And to your point, they, they sort of all take take then a share of the ultimate uh, benefits at the end of the day.
3: Yeah, that's a great summary, Chris. I'm glad you read the book so carefully. <laughs> yes. In in one of the, the
1: – related to tax policy, and I'm, I'm curious, when you, when you think about the inequality talk through – after World War II, there was something called the Great Compression where inequality came down dramatically. You know, how much of that is, you know, people talk about how great, how many companies can be started with so few people today, you know, the, the scalability of some of this tech where you, you get these billion-dollar companies with like 10 people. Um, how much of that is a tax issue, That the, the the issues of technology, or, or where, where do you see the trends of inequality going and what we should do about it?
3: Well, obviously, since... So there was a great compression after World War II. After 1980, there was the great widening, if you like, of inequality. And I think the concern is that AI could further exacerbate that. And and I think in addition to inequality, like the differential between the top and the bottom, there's also the issue about what exactly is the pay? and the living conditions and the opportunities of people are the are the lowest 10, 20, 40 percent of the income distribution. So some of those people and their families have been pushed down over the past 40 years. So it's not the case that the rising American tide has lifted all boats. So that's that's a big change over the 100 years prior to 1980. Um, look, ov- obviously, there are some scalability issues that you can build a very valuable company with not many employees. I don't think there's anything. Wrong with that, or anything we want to say about that, or we'll, we'll prevent that. I do think the creation of new tasks was the, the essential piece of the American manufacturing revolution. So from the late nineteenth century, and I think looking for those tasks more deliberately now is an entirely reasonable ask of the private sector. But what can people? What can you do? What are the goods and services that you can build and you can offer through? thinking hard about how generative AI can help um, create new tasks that, that are within the perimeter of your company or a new company that you can start. So I think it. I think of this is what we're offering is more of a challenge to the private sector and are pushing private sector leaders in that direction. Yeah, sure. Government can do some things that can be supportive. Government can also obviously always get in the way. Uh, and I think that while I'm a big supporter of government um, investments in basic science, through research and development that goes through NIH and the NSF and so on. I think the private sector has to lead on job creation. So we're looking for leadership in the private sector and encouraging leadership that will that is generating jobs that are more productive, that will earn higher wages. I think that's been that that's that's a core part of, of the American success over the last 250 years. And I think we just take an eye off that ball a little bit you know it's, it's jobs it's jobs friday so it's another
1: timely day to have this conversation about jobs uh you know I, I do you do you think anything on the covid and pandemic and new work from home environment has has shifted at all the calculus on on this the inequality spic- picture i mean I, in, in some ways you could say the, the work from home trend and and how tech is sh- shifting is actually going to provide some competition to those who work the you know Maybe some of the highest paying jobs, which now is opening to a global population set and will bring competition to US workers from all over the world in many ways. Uh, where, whereas if you were, you know, some of the other jobs, um, you know, you could say, you know, the ones that you do have to be on site for where you can't replace with remote workers might actually face the, and you can see where there's the, 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 the hardest time hiring and you see that leisure, hospitality, other, Maybe restaurants, those types of jobs, maybe that's going to start catching up, and people have to pay more for those. Is that is that a, a possible scenario playing out?
3: Well, I think that that's a, that's a very interesting and nuanced uh, perspective, Jeremy, and I don't disagree with it. So, COVID obviously reduced labor force participation, and and so that's part of and and the scrambling to hire people is part of what's pulled up wages at the low end. My colleague David Alter at MIT's got some um, very interesting results on that. Um, you know the. Working remotely is is interesting. I mean, some remote work you're willing to move to other countries, some not so much. I do think it might break the lock that the West Coast and the East Coast have had on 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 good jobs, including the tech sector of late. We used to have much more dispersed innovation and much more dispersion of good jobs in the U.S. than we've had last few decades, and. If you think about West Virginia, for example, a place lots of people had ideas about economic development and how do you help them manage the energy transition and so on. Great place to live, fantastic um, scenery and and leisure opportunities, but they they don't, haven't had a concentration of, of good jobs there. But if if they can be competitive in the remote provision uh, of work and tasks of the kinds of tasks that you want to be in the U.S., I think that that can actually help spread prosperity around the U.S. Um, What we're willing to do globally, what we're willing to do across borders, what we're willing to do with sensitive information across borders, how we prevent exfiltration of key technologies to countries that aren't friendly, I think those are also very important issues to add into the mix. Coming back to the
1: policy recommendations of how do we get the shared prosperity to the most of of all the benefits of technology, do you think we need to break up big tech. You know, is there too much power? You mentioned with Twitter and, and Facebook now having threads that you wish there was more competition. Is there something that we need to get some of these companies
3: to uh, be less powerful? I think it would be very good if we could find our way to some version of that, but it's not easy, right? Because, first of all, what what's the legal authority to break up a company that's already established and that's um, not um, explicitly or overtly, engage in sort of traditional monopoly abuses, Um, who's going to do that, which part of the government, which part of the court system, court decisions, of course, take a long time. I think it'd be great if we had more competition, more competition between business models, but combine that with consumer protection. I think a big part of the um, problematic attitudes in the AI industry, some parts of the AI industry, is they're not very careful with people's data. They've they've intruded into privacy. They've, I think, fairly evidently breached copyright in in terms of the source of some of their images. Um, And I, I think that is, is a core problem. So more looking for more opportunities to bring competition, to encourage competition, it is possible that Microsoft and, and Google will end up owning all the base models that, that matter. And they will derive massive profits from that. And I rather like the idea put forward by Kim Klausing of the UC, UCLA Law School, former, formerly the Treasury Department, which is that you should have a tax on profits based on total profit. So if these guys really make mega profits, they would pay a higher tax rate because then their shareholders would press them to break themselves up to get the lower tax rate. That's not our current tax system. We're a long way from that. But I think finding ways for shareholders to push for more competition is actually pretty clever. That is an interesting model where these companies also
1: locate a lot of their IP in tax havens in Ireland or or Puerto Rico, and then they pay no taxes. I mean, I think Microsoft and Apple are both notorious for locating tax and they're, they're obviously not the only two not to pick them out but in terms of total total profit size which are the biggest and they're taking advantage of that global tax arbitrage um so it's so it's yeah so
3: that so that's another example Jeremy that the tax system globally as it currently operates encourages companies to become very big because then they're more able to hire the lawyers and take advantage of these cross-border tax evasion schemes which is what they are
1: if you say there was a tech that we can learn the most from that did well, that really was sort of a, a big step forward that we that the, the there really was the, the the most new tasks created. Is there one that stands out in your mind Is that, that we should be thinking of the most
3: well I really like railways, I have to say, which is taking us back into the nineteenth century, obviously. But railways so railways did replace some people and some horses on long distance transportation. But if you would look at what happened in the first 70 or 80 years of of railway development, so from the 1820s to the end of the 19th century, um, actually there were more people involved in transportation, um, horse-drawn transportation, um, than before railways came along because there was so much local transportation in the the hubs to getting people and and goods to and from uh, the railway. In, In addition, the people around the railways took the view, this was a private sector view, that they needed people to pay great attention to safety and to quality of the work so make sure trains don't collide and so on and they paid premium wages they gave them uniforms they gave them railway cottages there was what economists like to call efficiency wages in that sector that was not government regulated at all government regulation came later on some safety issues like don't set fire to the neighborhood when you go through with your steam engine but in terms of how they treated the workers that was a private sector decision and that was a I think a really helpful force in Europe and in the United States, pushing towards higher wages, encouraging higher productivity. I mean, uh, railways uh, made all kinds of things possible, including travel by people, um, including tourism, including go, let's go see some other cities. Let's see how some other people live. Things that we that really had never done before. So I, I railways are at the top of my list, Jeremy.
1: Chris, from from your perspective, as you think about the technologies, anything that you you see standing out is things that are going to create new tasks for people. what What do you see in, in the text that, that you focus on?
0: the The one that leaps to mind um, because one of the things you do is you try to listen when when Nvidia is presenting, when some of these others are presenting, you're basically saying, what are they choosing to use to illustrate? advance and what seems to keep coming up again and again is the idea of possible drug discovery or at least you know shortening the length of time that it takes to go from the idea of a drug the idea of a molecule the idea of a protein to a usable fda approved therapy which obviously can take 10 years plus uh in the traditional manner even if you shave a few years off it could be very valuable so it's, it's interesting that a lot of companies are choosing to focus on that, to push that and to indicate that is the application of the technology that they want to showcase.
1: Simon, what else are you working on? You've got uh, a lot of interesting thoughts in this book. Well, do you have any new research projects or where where's, uh, where's your focus day to
3: day? well I, I think when you finish a book like this you go around touring uh, talking to lots of people fantastic feedback and debates and so on I, and you always sort of think about what's what's the next book which is very ill formed in our minds right <laughs> but I, I think people people are super interested in work jeremy what is work where did work come from why do we work do we want to work would we rather have you know 99% of our time be leisure so what's the value of work and and how do we think about structuring work in in the future with, with a lot of technology potential. And, and then what about work around the world? I mean, does AI make economic development and higher incomes more or less easy to attain in, you know, for, for the 7 billion people who don't, absolutely do not feel themselves to be comfortable off right now? I guess that
1: goes to one of the other policies you brought up, UBI, which is uh, put forward by Andrew Yang, is, hey, we need this with this new technology. Where, what does UBI get right and wrong in your view?
3: Well, we're not fans of UBI. <laughs> Actually, my, my colleague, my co-author my Drone is gonna be on Andrew Yang's podcast. So hopefully oh, nice. they'll sort each other out on, in that context. But I, I th- we're um, pretty convinced that people wanna work, Jeremy. Now, this is not saying that people wanna do 60 hours of backbreaking work, right? Clearly not. But work um, has social value. Work brings uh, status, brings recognition. Oh, and maybe people don't want to drive to work five day, <laughs> to and from work five days a week. OK, maybe we learn that from COVID. But it does seem that um, having a job and, and contributing to society through that work is valuable to people. And also we worry that if you have a set of people who get UBI and a set of people who don't, that the people getting UBI may find it pretty hard to sustain the level of those benefits over time because that's how the, that's how politics work. So we would rather create more good jobs for people and give them the training they need, the education. Um, and there's a lot of to be done in, in that space, as you know, including in the education system, just huge, huge gaps to, to help people address. And there COVID set us back, I think, on on education for, for many people, um, particularly low, lower income people. So I... I'm skeptical about whether universal basic income is 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 a big part of the solution here. I, I was uh, watching CNBC
1: today, and uh, Sal Khan, who founded Khan Academy, and something I've used with my 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 fifth grader, um, you know, extensively when she was trying to to get ahead in math, and we went through all the Khan Academy programs. Uh, he talked about the the new AI versions of Khan Academy that they're doing. I definitely highly encourage people, uh, and I think we 're running out of time here, but I uh, you know the you, you, one of the points you made in the book was you can get customized learning programs for people, but it would require hiring a lot more teachers, but that 's one of those places where hey, maybe we could bring new tasks if we used AI combined with education, they could get customized programs. A uh, big believer that we should do more of things like that in education uh, closing thoughts yeah, Simon. absolutely. where, where can we 're oh, out of time uh, thanks so much, Simon Johnson, author of Power and Progress. Dion Simpkins, happy nine-year anniversary to our show or previous show. And Chris, thanks for joining us here on Behind the Markets. You can listen to us at Behind the Markets Podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets Podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.